Okay, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 22, but I'm going to ask you, if you would, to turn to Galatians chapter 1. And I want to intro this study, which is a testimony, the testimony of a revelation. So we're going through this series. It's, it's the last 10 chapters. We're doing a chapter a week, so 28 chapters, 28 weeks. These last 10 chapters, we've, I've entitled the whole series as Going and Doing, the Making of a Testimony. So the first three studies that we looked at really focus a little more on going and doing. These last seven now, I want to talk about the making of a testimony, and this morning, the testimony of a revelation. So in this whole idea of testimony, your testimony is meticulously personal. From the very beginning to the very end, from when you were born to when you die. Others may know your testimony, but they haven't lived your testimony, nor can they, nor can you live someone else's. So our testimonies are very personal, they're unique, they're human, and they're real. Now my one hope, and I think ours as believers, our one hope is that you have welcomed Jesus in the fullest measure of the gospel, and you can't do that partially, the fullest measure of the gospel, you've welcomed Jesus into your story, your testimony. That as God has spoken to us by his son in these last days, Hebrews chapter 1, You have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ by repenting of your sin, turning to God, asking for his forgiveness, and receiving Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That you have personally responded with repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Acts chapter 20. Why? Because truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Again, Acts. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which, a day on which, he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M, whom he has ordained, Jesus. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead, Acts chapter 17. So that would be the sort of an intro in this whole thing called a testimony. I hope and pray that Jesus become a part of your story. If he hasn't, I want to give you an opportunity this morning, to ask Jesus Christ into your life to save you from your sin, to fill you with his spirit, give you eternal life, and walk with you the rest of your days right out of this world into eternity. That's the hope that we have. So that opportunity is going to be yours if you've never done that. Let me say this. I hope you're, th- in fact, I'm confident you're thinking about it because I just talked to you. But listen to this. It's not me talking to you. God is wanting to speak to you. It's his Holy Spirit that's working in you to bring you to a place of accepting Christ as your Savior, to understand and see him as he reveals himself to you, you respond to him through the gospel. So God is, you're not here by accident. You're here because God loves you. You're here because for some reason you chose, and God in wanting to draw you to himself has brought you, and let me say this also, when we go through the word, it is not just the word, it's the word of God. It's God speaking. It's living and powerful. It's active. So as we go through the word, as you read your Bible, in fact, if you don't know Jesus yet, I would encourage you to read the Gospel of John because he said, this is why I wrote it, that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you may believe on him. You would come to a place of understanding who Jesus is through the miracles that John gives through the book of of John, seven miracles he gives of Jesus. He talks about the I am. So anyway, I don't want to get too, too sidetracked, but may you this morning... Respond to that still, small voice in your heart 
That is God himself saying, I love you, and I want to bring you to a place of forgiving you of all your sin, giving you eternal life that you may know me, the only true God. Amen? So the testimony of a revelation, Galatians 1. Now Paul wrote this, this first letter, he wrote it, after his first, the first missionary journey. It's in the canon of Scripture. It's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and it's authoritative, his, work, his, his book to the Galatians, as his other ones. He probably wrote it again right after the first missionary journey, which would be Acts 13 and 14, and then before chapter 15. It is one of several times that Paul, in his letters, includes either all or part of his personal testimony, and no wonder, because Jesus radically changed his life forever, literally. And through this one man's testimony, he changed the world of his time, literally, and he has been changing the whole world ever since, literally, because his, his testimony is given to us several times in God's holy word. Now, God could have chosen anyone and done the exact same thing. But God chose Saul of Tarsus, a proud Jewish rabbi who despised Gentiles and hated Christians, to be the one who would embrace Christianity and go to the Gentiles, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the love of God, proclaiming the gospel of the grace of God for them, radical. And that's his testimony. And I'm thankful that God chose someone. Amen? He chose Saul of Tarsus. So as we begin our study this morning, I want to read Galatians 1, and I want to just let Paul speak for himself. So I hope you have your Bibles open or your, your um, devices. Let's read it. I'll, I'll read it. You follow. Paul, verse Galatians 1, again, first letter he's written. He's planted some churches in the Galatian area. He's now writing them because he's concerned that they're pulling away from the simplicity of the gospel. So he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's where his commissioning from, his authority. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul in his letters often had these, these, these sort of proclamations, these, and he'd say, Amen. Verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. In other words, you're, you're turning out to this other gospel that's not the same. It's different. Now notice what he says, which is not another of the same kind, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Strong words. Again, as we said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Let me say this. We're going to close this morning with a passage uh, in Corinthians. But let me say this. God's power to save is through the preaching of the gospel that Paul himself explained to us in, his, in the scriptures. There is no other gospel. Anything added to it is not the same gospel. I'm preaching because that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> For I, do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? 
For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul said, these are my marching orders. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through, notice, the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, notice verse 16, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. It was me and God. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. God separated him right out because this was something between him and God. God revealed himself to him. We'll look at that in a moment. His testimony, Jesus met him on that road to Damascus. He had this encounter with the living God. God himself spoke to him. This was not something man did. It wasn't something Saul did. It was something that God did and revealed himself to Paul on that road to Damascus. Wow. Then after three years, we're going to get this a little in this in Acts 22. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning a thing which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about how this happens. Afterward, I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, his missionary journeys, and I was no, unknown by face of the church of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only, notice this, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and notice they glorify God in me. What a wonderful testimony. So this thing called a revelation, or the testimony of a revelation. Three things, I'm going to start with this first one that spoke to my heart. Number one, it's why I speak up for Jesus. It's why I speak up for Jesus, because he revealed himself to me. Now, here in these books, in these chapters in Acts, we, again, we once again have an overlapping chapter, chapter break, if you will. So if you would, now Acts 21, verse 39, let's get a running start into what's happening. Now, if you were here last week, you know we were talking about that whole ruckus that stirred everything up. So if you weren't here, the study's online or read chapter 21. But 21, 39, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He wants to speak to the crowd there. So he's asking for permission. He replied, can you speak Greek? Again, I'll, I'll refer you to the last week's study. Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assemblies out into the wilderness, assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, no small city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, verse 1 of 22, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said to them. Now Paul could have spoken to them and they would have understood Greek. He did not. He speaks to his brethren, the Jews, in their revered mother tongue of Aramaic. And I believe, as we read here, that he immediately further 
captured their attention. Masterful thing that the Holy Spirit did through Paul. So he has wanted to preach the gospel to his brethren from time when he first was saved. He wanted to tell them his testimony. He was sure they'd listen to it. We'll see that in this chapter. He has the audience now. He's going, yes. He's on the stairs. He's ready to speak. He speaks to them in the Hebrew and Aramaic. Now at this time, Koine Greek was the common everyday marketplace language. Koine Greek developed in the 4th century and continued for the following centuries. The Septuagint, maybe you've heard that, of that, it's a 3rd century B.C. translation of the Hebrew Bible, was in Koine Greek for the common person. Most of the early church fathers wrote in Koine Greek. So when you hear a Bible teacher say something like this, the word defense, notice in verse 1, hear my defense, the word defense in the Greek, which would be Koine Greek, is the word apologia, which means, that's what, the, that's what we're saying, it's that language. So defense, apologia, it doesn't, it's the word apologia, but it doesn't mean an apology. It's apologetics. So the word is a legal term. It's a formal defense to support his actions. Or why is it that he's testifying the gospel of the grace of God to the Jews? Well, he's going to explain why. This is his defense. This is why he's doing what he does. This is to support his actions. I think it's very important for us when we speak up for God to notice what Paul didn't say. He said nothing about their accusations as to defiling the temple by allowing some Gentile in with him. He didn't do that, first of all, but they were accusing him of that. So he didn't give say, you know what? You were telling me I brought Trophimus. I didn't do that. No, he didn't say anything about that, which I think is very telling. He wasn't going to stir up something unnecessarily. He wanted to communicate to them the gospel. He wanted to tell them his testimony. Very wise here, I believe. So he's taking and putting his Christian faith in a Jewish context which is something also very wise. Here my defense. You see the justification for his actions to the Jews, his brethren. See, what happened to him was not an apostasy from Judaism. What happened to, Paul, to Saul of Tarsus was that he now had met the, the promised, prophesied Messiah of the scriptures, of their religion, of their faith. He had met Jesus. So rather than being this, this apostasy from Judaism, he has now met the promised Messiah who finally came. Now, that wasn't always the case with Saul of Tarsus. At first, he rejected the whole thing. He rejected Jesus. He was wanting to kill Christians. And I put a note here. Many, many people reject Jesus, some violently initially. Maybe that was you. But that did not stop Jesus from going to the cross for each and every person, knowing what lay ahead. Daniel Amos, remember that band? If you do, you're old. 1976. God's love, it has no bounds, has no ups, and it has no downs. Goes out to those who win and to those who lose. Jesus died for sinners, losers, and winners. Yes, it's proven by his love for me and you. That's the case. Jesus died for those who reject him. And there, there, were, there are many. 
So defense, apology, it's not an apology. So I need, I never need to apologize that Jesus revealed himself to me. Now here's the thing. I don't know why, but I'm happy he did. And I receive that as the grace of God to me. I don't understand why some don't receive it, but I know this. I know that he revealed himself to me. I heard his voice. I responded to that message that I needed to get right with God, and the only way was through him. He came to me, and I don't apologize for that personal revelation to me in my life on a specific time and at a, at a, on a certain day when that happened for me. I don't apologize because I know I did nothing to deserve it. And I also know that neither can anyone else do anything to deserve it. That his grace was and is towards me. I know not why, but I'll thank him until I die. And when I rise, and then through all eternity, I'm going to worship before the lion and the lamb. Don't you love that song? The lion and the lamb, the majesty of our God and king, and the humility of our God and king for you and for me. And he met me, and he met many of you, and he revealed himself to you. And had he not, you wouldn't know him. How deep the Father's love for us. One of the, one of the verses. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. That's what Jesus did. And so that's why I speak up for Jesus. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm a debtor to Jews and the Greeks. Paul looked at himself as in debt to God for all that he had done for him. So he said, I labored more abundantly than all yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul was at it because he was speaking for God who had done such marvelous things in his life. He said, the love of Christ constrains me. I love what he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says to Timothy, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of what? Power and love and a sound mind. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to what? The power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which, is, which was revealed, which has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, not by, he, we're laboring. And he's telling Timothy, stir it up, Timothy. He, he's not giving you this spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Communicate, Timothy. He has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through what? The gospel. Verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, he's saying to me, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. God is a keeping, saving God. He's saying to Timothy, go for it. Communicate, Timothy. Get out there. And so I never apologize for the gospel. Never apologize for the revelation of Jesus in my own life. But I may need to apologize sometimes in how I communicate to people being a spokesman for God. And I know you need to say amen to that. There are times when we speak up and it would have been better if we hadn't. Obviously, it goes without saying 
that we must be speaking in actual human language that whoever we're talking to understands. Otherwise, we need a translator. Can I hear an amen on that one? Now, I want to give a little shout out, and I hope you'll, well, you, I'm going to ask you to. We have a translation, English to Spanish translation, uh, yeah, English to Spanish translation team that's been translating when I, they're trying to keep up with me all the time. But they translate our, se- our 11 a.m. service. And it's a, it's a pretty large endeavor. We have several that get these things. So would you just say thank you to our translation team just with your hands this morning. Say thank you for them. And man, do I test them. <laughs> I got the notes and stuff, but yeah. So Paul reproved the Corinthians because they were not considering what was happening when they're speaking in tongues. They're, they're, so he says this, 1 Corinthians 14, 23. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? And that's a misuse of the gift of tongues. So Paul's saying, you got to communicate in a way that they understand it. And we, under, we know that. We get that in that human language. But also, we must endeavor to do our best to put our Christian life commission in a personal, understandable language, not only in word, but in deed. The spoken and unspoken voice of our lives. So there are things that are universal in language. Love. Truth, grace, and one that the Bible emphasizes in Jesus, good works. Jesus, God's work, put a great emphasis on the language of good works. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they what? See your good works, the light, not a voice, a light, and they glorify God in heaven. To Titus, Paul wrote, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, in other words, live it out, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that, one who is a, that, that the one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing to say to you. So good works and good speech combined silence criticism. So when we are genuine in why we speak for God, why? Because we love him and we love them. When we're truthful in what we speak for God, why? Because we love him and we love them. No show, no hypocrisy. When we're gracious in how we speak for God, why? Because we know that God loves them as much as he loves me. The language of sincere love will bridge a chasm of communication gaps, be that age or background or culture or career or education or religious beliefs and so many other things, when love is what's permeating the language, it communicates powerfully. Paul said this again to the Corinthians. They needed a lot of correction. In 2 Corinthians 5.13, he said, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. I love it. In other words, if you might, th- if you might th- look at me, man, why is he so zealous. It's for God. You might think I'm out of my mind. No, I'm just in crazy love with God. So if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. So I want to be crazy for God, but I want to communicate in the clarity that people understand. We strive to do that. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if Christ died for all, then all died. We're all under that sinful curse. 
and he died for all. We all needed a savior. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him, Jesus, who died for them and rose again. So we want to be living in such a way that they see what happened in our lives, that they then might be receptive to what Jesus has done for them. M. Griffin, who wrote a book, again, 1976, The Mind Changers, The Art of Christian Persuasion, wrote something that I think is something to think about. He said, quote, As ambassadors of Christ, we need to have an ethical standard which guides our appeal regardless of how people respond. I believe there is such a standard. And simply stated, it is this. Any persuasive effort that restricts another's freedom to choose for or against Jesus Christ is wrong, unquote. God is not forcing himself, and we need to be careful that we are not, whatever word you want to put there, doing the same or or communicating in such a way that we're pressuring. It's not our job to save people. That's God's. It's not our job to convict people. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And through us, he will convict the world. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, here it is, because they do not believe in me. That's what Jesus said in John. So so that's not our burden to carry. That's not ours to do. We can't do that. But we need to be speaking in such a way the Holy Spirit can communicate in such a way to bring, to be drawn to the things that we believe and we live. Our beloved country, with its deteriorating culture, is so filled with lying fabrications used to spin self-centered agendas, it's created a pronounced longing for authenticity and honesty. That's what's happening. You might see that. And so I say, brothers and sisters, Lord, let's take advantage of that. Let's be authentic. Let's be honest. Let's, as I said in one study, let's be real and let's be ready to go out into this world that's longing for something real and authentic and honest. And let's humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, what's, what does the Lord require of me? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. To do justly, love mercy. Now, to do justice, do what's right. Walk humbly. I know, God, you're what's right. And I want to walk with you. So maybe one of the most, another note here, and we'll move on to my second point. Maybe one of the most easily missed but most amazing part of this whole story is the fact that the Roman commander gave permission for Paul to even speak, to speak at all. He may have seen Paul's composure under such circumstances. He may have hoped to understand exactly what just happened, why he's given him permission to speak. But for whatever reason this commander did, know this, Keep it in mind that it was God who was actively using Paul the Apostle in that situation to speak for him. That was God's doing. Paul would have a personal audience with the most powerful leaders of his time. God gave him open doors into these kings and these high up political people, powerful people. But Paul knows, he knew God could have used anybody but he chose to use him. Paul said, last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time, as one who should have never been born, is what Paul's saying when he looked at his life and how he lived it. 
For I am the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This is his testimony. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. I shared that a little bit already. So Paul the apostle knew God was using him, but it had nothing to do with him. It was God's purpose in his life to use him. So whoever may be the audience that God gives you to speak for him, even if it was the President of the United States, would you be prepared to speak up for God? Would you be ready to share your testimony? It's not complicated. It's your story. Empowered through the Holy Spirit, it is powerful. The overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Would you be ready? Would you be prepared? Let me say, I believe as a believer you are prepared, so there are some things to keep in mind. Remember that God can use anybody, anywhere, at any time, and he might choose to use you and say, okay, good. Remember, God's the one who put you right there, but also remember that God's the one who put them right there. God always works both sides of the, of the issue or the conversation. Remember, God is with you right there, and remember that God is with them right there. It's not your job to save them. Not, yours there is just to share with them your story, and who doesn't like to tell their story? And remember, God is the one who will be speaking through you to them about him. We'll just tell them our story. Jesus said, when they arrest you and deliver you, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you'll speak. Don't try and put your sermon together. Now, this is not talking about teaching the Bible. Can I hear an amen on that? <laughs> That's not what it's talking about. He's saying, when they arrest you and they deliver you up, he says to them, don't think about beforehand. Don't worry, in other words. Whatever is given you in that hour, speak it. So as you're thinking through the situation, and this is where we need the Holy Spirit and the peace of God in those situations that are difficult to sort of arrest us a little bit and bring us to a place. Okay, God, here I am. Here I am. You're with me. You're with them. You put me here. You put them here. So here I am. In that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Let's trust the Holy Spirit. Second thought for me in this chapter, the Testament of Revelation. It's why I stopped fighting against Jesus, because he revealed himself to me. Notice, I am indeed, verse 3, a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So why I stopped fighting against Jesus? See, I once, Paul would say, I once was a proud, arrogant, and fiercely self-righteous man. That's what I was. And he's saying that right here. He speaks them as one who understands them. He comes from the same roots. Communication. He was taught by the best. He practiced zealously what he believed. He lived it out. He was studious and very zealous. Interesting, Paul commends them for their zeal. That's always a great communication bridge builder. People love to be acknowledged and affirmed. Particularly important is that it's honest. It's not flattering. So he says, I was born. So a question that I use... Where are, you, where are you from? I was taught, and Paul talks about his, his education. I love to, hey, where'd you, 
Where did you go to school? What are your interests? Where do you work? See, these are all sort of questions that bridge those gaps where I can speak to them about why I stopped fighting against Jesus. Why I'm speaking for God. There are a lot of common elements in all of our lives that can be asked. And so Paul not only is relating to them culturally, he's relating to them emotionally, which also isn't, as you know, when you're talking to someone and the emotions become one, there's power. There's a powerful thing going on there. And so he says, I used to persecute, and there were many in that crowd, obviously, in their response, that felt the same exact way as Paul did. Kill them. So he's connecting on an emotional level. He says, first of all, I was proud, arrogant, fiercely self-righteous, but then I met Jesus. He said, I was woefully ignorant until I met Jesus. Notice, now it happened. As I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, there's a question that comes up here because if you read Acts 9, 7, his testimony, it says, the men who journeyed with me stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Now, Paul said here, they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. We also get in Acts chapter 26, his testimony again. He said, and when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying to me in the, here's a note, Hebrew language. So I believe you combine those three. The question is answered simply this way. The men who were with him didn't understand Hebrew. Jesus speaks. So they heard the voice, didn't understand what was being said. And listen, really, that's what's true of every revelation that we've had. All of our salvation stories are God was speaking to us and only us. It was us and Jesus. That's what happened. And others may have heard the voice, but they don't understand what he might be saying and how he reached our hearts. And so Paul's saying that. So that's how I understand that verse. He also says, I was once totally blind. Notice verse 10. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all things which are appointed for you to do. These are appointed for you. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, notice, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Now, it's interesting. I believe that the light that blinded him was so that the Lord could speak to him. So in his darkness is where he was hearing and encountering Jesus personally. And then when he receives the sight, now he looks up and sees Ananias. But he had just seen Jesus, and it changed his life forever. I was, so I was once totally blind. And so to speak to him in his darkness, and Paul, the, Saul of Tarsus, he not only heard him, he obeyed it. As he said in Acts 26, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He responded to Jesus. He also said in his testimony, I was once pitifully unworthy. Notice verse 14. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Good question. Paul, why, Saul, why are you waiting? 
Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul said, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Persecute the church. He knew how unworthy he was that Jesus would even meet him, speak to him, not much less save him. Turn him in all of his sin. Turn him in all of his arrogance and pride and all of his, his uh, persecution of Jesus himself. And so he said to the Ephesians, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. And you read these in many of his epistles. He said, to me, I'm less than the least of all the saints. The grace of God was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And his life, as he thought of his testimony, was all about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he got to tell people about it. So here's how I would say in my name, Paul might say, in all my sin, Jesus came to reveal himself to me. Oh, what a savior. In all of my wretchedness, Jesus came and revealed himself to me. Oh, what a savior. In all of my rebellion, in all of my, my transgressions and sin, Jesus came to me. You know, here's one thing that when Charlotte and I are with couples, we always like to ask, how'd you meet? I've never had a couple, we've never had a couple say, well, I don't really want to talk about that. <laughs> Unless they're having a bad day. <laughs> I wish I'd never met the guy. <laughs> but you see, how, when we meet, it's, it's the beginning of a relationship. And I'm always in, how did you meet? What happened? Like Charlotte used to work at Calvary Fellowship. I had a cabinet business in, in the same building. So I, was, I got my mail from the Calvary Fellowship uh, office. She was in there doing stuff for the Robert Case Band. I walk in there one day, here's Charlotte. Her last name was Israel. I thought she's got to be a part of a cult. <laughs> Charlotte Israel, come on. Well, we started talking and... And uh, it was an interesting first conversation and led to a lifetime together in marriage. Been awesome. That's how we met. And those are always, and see, I know it's different with Jesus, but it's the same idea. When you met Jesus, don't you love to talk about that? He met you in all your sin, all your wretchedness, all your pride, all your arrogance, all the things in your blindness and all that stuff, in your unworthy. He met you. He revealed himself to you personally. The final thought, it's why I will serve Jesus until he calls me home. I'm going to serve him. Do a little bit of the chapter, not the whole thing. He said, now it happened. See, Jesus changed my life and nothing will ever separate me from him. Paul wrote that in Romans. Neither life nor death, angels or principalities, things present, things to come, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me from the love of Christ. That's his testimony. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple. I love this. In a trance, saw him saying to me, here's Jesus again speaking to Paul. Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they'll not receive your testimony concerning me. Now, this is probably three years later as we wrote in Galatians. We read in Galatians, probably three years later. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I in prison and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your, of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So here's Paul. He's back at his old stuff. He's arguing with the Lord again. Know this. If you're arguing with the Lord, you might want to lose. Be a good thing to lose. Let him win the argument, Okay. And Paul saying, I know. No, Jesus saying, no, no, no. The timing's not right now. You've got to get out of here. And that he did. He finally listened to him. Then he said, depart. I'll send you to, here it is, the Gentiles. Notice verse 22. And they listened to him until this word 
And when they raised their voices and said, away with him, they raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow for the earth, for he is not fit to live. They said, Gentiles, no way. You talk about a prejudiced mindset. Talk about anger that's the fruit of their pride and spiritual self-righteousness. They considered Gentiles the lowest of the low. Now, it wasn't just the Jews to the Gentiles. The Gentiles also had the same, same their, their cultures had the same view of anyone who's not part of their culture, and they called them barbarians. I often refer to myself as a barbarian sometimes in the way I act. So the, the whole idea of this prejudice really pervades the sinful nature. I'm better, you're better, I'm right, you're wrong. It's like two pastors who get into a heated argument about their respective faiths. That's all right, said one calmly. We'll just agree to disagree. And we always say that. We'll agree to disagree. After all, we're both doing the Lord's work. You in your way and I in his. <laughs> all right? Now, here's the deal. So, verse 23. As they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, they are mad. They're wanting to kill Paul once again. But I think Paul would say, I understand why someone is proud, arrogant, and self-righteous. They've yet to meet Jesus. And if they can meet him, he'll change their lives forever. Paul could say, I understand why someone speaks against Jesus in the gospel. They just haven't met Jesus yet. And when they do, he'll change their lives just like he did mine. That's our testimony. He might say, I understand why someone speaks against Jesus, fights against him because they've not met him yet. And if they'll give him space, if they'll listen, and in their darkness consider, he'll change their lives just like he did mine. He revealed himself. You see, even the most profound, eloquent, moving testimony has absolutely no power to finally overcome the problem of sin and the obstacles that hinder repentance. Be it pride, ignorance, blindness, prejudice, just to name a few. The only means by which a person's sin is atoned for, that is all people, that the sinner can be forgiven, and the obstacles that hinder repentance can be removed, is not through any genius or ingenuity of mankind. It's not through education, philosophy, psychology, or psychiatry. It's not through PhDs or MIT. It's not through religious creeds or religious deeds or religious succeeds. The power of God unto salvation is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the power of what seems foolish and weak of the cross. That's what Paul said in Corinthians. It's only through the foolishness and weakness of God that this revelation takes root in a person's life. The message of the cross speaks for itself, so let's speak up for God. The power of the gospel preached through you is what brings that revelation into the heart of a sinner where they need to be saved. So they don't, God just needs our voice. Speak up for God. Stop fighting against Jesus. Serve him until he comes by living out the gospel, not only in deed but in word. So let me close with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm just going to read it and we'll pray and 
I want to give an opportunity to anyone here, and then we'll take communion. 1 Corinthians 1.17, if you have it and can read along with me, it'd be great. Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, there are those that say you've got to be baptized to be saved. Well, this, obviously, that's not true. But to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You experience the power of God when you believe in Christ through the cross. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the dispute of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. They were always doing that with Jesus. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. We can get there through our own knowledge and ingenuity. But we preach Christ crucified. That's the difference. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, notice, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than than men. I am so thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ and the simplicity of the gospel because if it wasn't for that, we'd be up in heaven boasting just like we do here. I can't boast of anything except Jesus and, my, and the cross of Christ for me. When I came to that awareness that I needed to be forgiven, I came to that awareness that God provided on the cross, that hideous, torturous place where his son was sacrificed for me, I'm brought to my knees before God and say, God, you're so good and merciful and gracious. And yes, I'm turning to you. So would you bow your heads and pray right now, my fellow uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we're praying right now for anyone that's among us that has yet to get right with God, to find the freedom from sin, to come to repentance, which is just turning from sin. It's the most important decision you will ever make. It's the decision you're making. And what God offers to you, you must choose So three things I'm going to ask you to do. Number one, just to raise your hand and say, I want to get right with God. I want to acknowledge right now, I need my sins forgiven. I need to know that when I die, I know I'm going to be in heaven for all eternity. Raise your hand up. Secondly, stand up because that's your obedience to the gospel. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. And that is so important, not because we're trying to draw attention to you, but rather that as you stand, say, Jesus, I am going to obey the gospel. You're standing and with that, God comes now into your life and washes away your sin. He takes away from you all the fears of what would happen or how it would be, all the excuses of why you haven't up till now. God doesn't, he's not measuring that against you. He put that on the cross also. And you're standing as a means of saying, God, I'm going to obey now, today. And I'm going to ask you to walk up to the tables where someone will, will be with you as you give your life to Christ through prayer. So if that's you, as we're praying, I'd like you first just to put up your hand, raise it up, say, this morning is my time. Today is the day of my salvation. And as we're praying, we're going to continue just to, to wait and ask the Holy Spirit who may be moving in your heart, and that's a battle, we get that. So we're praying. If that's you, just as you're thinking that through and wrestling, as you just raise up your hand and say, yes, I need to say yes to Jesus. waiting, that's you. 
And I'll start in, in, in this, this little couple more, a few more minutes we're going to take here, just in the, in the atmosphere of worship and prayer, we're going to take communion. So they're going to pass out the emblems. And these are for the believer. If you don't know Christ, we're going to ask you to let them pass you by. Because what they do is they symbolize what we believe about what Jesus accomplished for us. In his body being sacrificed, the Lamb of God, his blood being shed, his life poured out. Because that was what was necessary for the forgiveness of sin. So we're taking them. So if you're not a believer, then you want to let that pass you by. Just enjoy the moment. So as they're passed out, just receive them. And then I'll come up and lead us in taking them together as the body of Christ.